Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. Hi, everyone. We have divided this podcast with Norman Cohn into two episodes. The first episode, which we are presenting right now, features a discussion with Norman about his early days and the story of how ASI got off the ground. The second episode, to be released next week, will bring us up to the present where Norman talks about some of the challenges and opportunities we face as an industry in 2015. Please enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products industry. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and I'm joined by my friend and fellow chef, Dale Denham, CIO of Geiger. Today, we have the privilege to speak with one of the most influential and dynamic people in our industry, Norman Cohn. Norman is the chairman of the Advertising Specialty Institute, most commonly known as ASI. In June of 2012, the Wall Street Journal described Norman as the Sultan of Swag. It was a breakthrough piece written by one of the country's most prominent media outlets, and it shone a bright light on our industry. However, Norman is so much more than just the Sultan of Swag. Some might say he's the architect of the modern promotional products industry. Norman was born in Iowa in 1933, and he had his first encounter with promotional products in high school, and more on that later. In 1962, Norman convinced his family to sell off their supplier interests and acquire ASI, at the time, a small and struggling trade association. Over the next six decades, ASI grew into a powerhouse with media, technology, trade shows, and education as part of its product mix. ASI touches over 25,000 distributors and suppliers and wields enormous influence over how the industry operates today. How ASI grew to where it is today is an incredible story of perseverance and entrepreneurship. And this story and the lessons learned will be the subject of our podcast. And without further ado, Norman, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It was very nice of what you said. Well, the honor and privilege is all ours. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Let's get started off with the beginning, Norman. Can you tell us how you got your start in the industry? Yes. My father was in the grocery business, and from the age of seven years old, I would go with him to the grocery stores on weekends when I wasn't in school, but particularly on Saturday. And as he opened a new store, I candled eggs. Most people don't know what candling eggs are because you go to a supermarket today and all the eggs are in nifty packages. Hmm. But in those days, they came from the farmers, 30 dozen in a big carton, and I had to hold up each egg to a light. And if there was any problem with the yolk, you could see it in the light, and that was called candling eggs. So for a number of years, I did that or bagged groceries on Saturday. But more specific to this industry, when I was a junior in high school, I stopped at my uncle's. My father's two brothers were in business in Waterloo, Iowa, where I lived and was born. And they had a scrap metal yard 
and a new machinery business. And I saw there a hundred cases of Smucker Preserves. Hmm. And I said to them, gee, what are you doing with the Smucker Preserves? And they said, we're using as Christmas gifts to our customers. So I came back and thought to myself, we have Smucker Preserves in our stores. We could sell Smucker Preserves. And we started a company called Santa Claus Associates. And I was a distributor for my senior year in high school. I went out, I was 17 years old, that summer, supposed to be starting college that fall. I delayed that, and so I went to college at the university, which is now called University of Northern Iowa. We have a fairly good basketball team, but that's not our claim to fame, I suppose. But in any regard, it was seven miles from my home, and I hitchhiked to school every day, but I did not go in the fall. I went the winter, spring, and summer quarters. I contacted Smucker, found out that Bankers Advertising, who had sold the Smucker Preserves to my uncle's company, had it exclusively. As a matter of fact, Bankers Advertising, which is still in our industry today, very successful, both as a supplier and a distributor, but not of Smucker Preserves. This became a very big product for them, and I believe in the history of their company, which is obviously older than ASI, they uh, indicate that they were the people responsible for our family getting in the industry, and that's actually true. Hmm. And on my desk, I have a jar of Smucker Preserves to remind me where I came from. Hmm. So I really then contacted people that made cheese and other food gifts and went around that summer selling food gifts to business firms. And my first order was a lumber yard in Vinton, Iowa, hmm. and I didn't know, it was the first call I made, I didn't know how lucky I was to get an order that quickly. But anyway, I enjoyed it. I was a distributor salesperson selling these items for a number of years, but that's how we got in the industry. Hmm. And then just to take it a little bit further, we, over the next number of years, acquired and started a variety of more traditional at specialty products because when we were in the food gift business, and that's what we first brought into the ad specialty business when we discovered it, people in those days did not sell food gifts. They were all sold by mail order companies or primarily by mail order companies like Harry and David. And so this was a new concept for the ad specialty world. And we became a supplier and changed our name to WICO, Waterloo Idea Companies and grew to be the largest supplier. It was a different world in those days, so the largest supplier in those days hardly compares to the people that are giant suppliers today. But we did become that and had a number of different divisions in the ad specialty field. But it all started with my uncle's having bought Smucker Preserves. Hmm. So I guess if Bankers Advertising hadn't sold those Smucker Preserves, I'd be doing something else today. Wow, interesting. Tell us, Norman, the story about ASI. How did that get off the ground? Well, Joe Siegel, who is a serial entrepreneur, started, I think, 20-some companies, of which eventually three became successful. ASI was one of them, and the QVC, the TV channel that sells merchandise, was the second one. And he had a 
third company that was successful. I honestly forget at the moment which one it was. The other 17 were big problems. We discovered ASI, meaning that our family, and we had never heard about specialty distributors, truthfully. And in those days, it was a very small industry. There were maybe 200 companies that were distributors. Mm. And one of them, Brown and Bigelow, did about $50 million, which was about more than 10% of the entire industry sales in those days. Mm. And there were other companies called direct houses. Most are no longer. And they all, uh, as a direct house, made their own products. Not like today where there were suppliers and distributors. The distributors in those days, most of them were what's called a direct house, somebody that made their own products that they sold right. in their own factory or designed it and had it made somewhere else. And so we discovered ASI. I became friendly with Joe Siegel. And Joe Siegel had started ASI when he was in college at the University of Pennsylvania, Wharton School. He started selling book matches. And his customers wanted to buy other things that had logos on them. And so he went to the library and looked up potential sources and contacted them. And so he added items that he could sell in the Philadelphia area while he was in college. And eventually then came out with a list, which he called the register, which was a few hundred suppliers that made logo items. And a few companies found out about it and bought it. And that's sort of how ASI started. And Joe is a perfectionist, still today is. And he wasn't satisfied with the people doing his printing. So even though he didn't have any money, he invested in the printing activity. And when we acquired ASI, half their business came from printing and half was selling information service. And in those days, Joe borrowed from what was called SBICs. They were set up by the government. I mean, they weren't government-owned, but I mean, there was a, a law that allowed them to have tax benefits of making investments in businesses. Mm. And Joe had borrowed from 21 different SBICs and was unable to make money because he was such a perfectionist. And uh, so we actually, as a large supplier, was, I guess, their biggest advertiser by far in those days. He had started the Kausher magazine and also had what was called the Consolidated Catalog which was a catalog of products that a distributor could take in their to their prospect and show them many products that were mm. available in the industry. So business was growing, but unfortunately kept needing more money. And we were sort of fascinated by the business and, you know, felt sorry in one sense because we knew that Joe had borrowed all this money and was having difficulty justifying to the people that lent it to him that they should not only let him keep owing the money, but he kept needing to borrow more. And he ended up in a situation where the creditors, the SBICs, were going to take over the business. Right. We were concerned about that as the large supplier because we were afraid that the information, if it got in hands of people that, that, you know, we're just looking to get their money back, which nothing wrong in this sense with that, would 
lose the confidentiality because it was a closed industry. We were afraid they would just sell it to end buyers or anybody else that wanted to know where you could buy at specialties. And so we acquired originally a division that Joe had started called SGI, a selective gift activity, hoping that would solve his money problems. And it did for a year, but then he was back in the same boat. And so we decided to protect the industry and ourselves. We would acquire ASI and pay off all those creditors so that Joe then ran the business for a couple of years for right. us. And then the next president, George Fennell, ended up going to Xerox, but he had worked for Joe, and he right. was there for a year or two. So that's probably longer than you wanted to know, but that's how we entered the ad specialty industry as ASI. You know, I find it fascinating. I really love the story and the detail. Norman, I'm curious, take me back to 1962. What was your vision for ASI at that time? And then I suppose this is a two-part question. So first of all, I want to know back in 1962, what your vision as a 29-year-old man and new owner of this business, what your vision for ASI was. And then if you now look at 2015 from your vantage point now, have you realized upon that vision now, six decades later? Well, thank you. I would like to tell you, but it wouldn't be the truth, so I want to tell you the truth. <laughs> and I had such a great vision of what was going to happen. My vision was we got to stop the losses. Mm. And Joe had lost, uh, or ASI had lost, $4 million in the previous two or maybe three years. And our family was in no position to lose that kind of money. So my vision was let's try to make the changes that ASI won't lose money. I didn't understand at that point the long-time opportunity that this industry provided. Mm -hmm. And so the first couple of years, we kept our supply business, did not announce that we'd acquired ASI, and just hoped that we could keep it going without going down the drain ourselves. And we were lucky and made some changes so that ASI started to break even, which was a big change from losing $4 million. Mm. And over the next couple of years, then realized that there was a tremendous potential. Right. I had no idea, to be honest, that it would become a business of the size that it is today, but certainly could see the industry was growing, people were using ad specialties. The old days of direct houses, a, a few dozen companies doing half the industry business was not going to be the future. And so as the business grew, we sold all of our supplier businesses because didn't think it was right to both own ASI and be a supplier. And then many things kept occurring in the industry that enabled us to grow, bring out new products, new services, and of course, eventually, we got the vision. But I didn't, I don't want to mislead and make people think how smart I must have been. My vision when we acquired it was, let's stop the losses. And that was my big vision. And Norman, I'm fascinated to know that moment when ASI tipped from being in the red to being in the black to being a company and a business model that you knew 
could be really successful. When was that? Was that five years in, 10 years in, 20 years in? I would say that in two years, I realized once the red ink had stopped that this business had potential mm. and therefore convinced my family we should sell our supplier businesses. We sold them in pieces to many different companies and some are still operating them today and some have gone into other hands over the years. But the first two years, I was sweating every day that we would not lose the kind of money that, that Joe had lost. And I realized that if we focused on this business, it could be a more successful business than it ever had been. And so I guess two years after we acquired it, we then put our total focus and effort on making it successful and trying to make the industry more successful. Norman, this is Dale. So I've heard the story before, although not with that much detail, which is really fun for me, and know about the success firsthand that you've had. But one of the things that I don't know the answer to is you talked about this decision and how you saw two years after you had made the decision to acquire ASI to get out of the supplier business. If you look back over the last 50 years, including that decision, what is one of the most difficult business decisions you ever had to make, and how did it turn out, and what can people like me learn from that? Well, I think the biggest thing I learned, and I learned it from my father, was, and I've not always followed it to my disadvantage usually, is that we needed to focus on a single business and not just have a variety of businesses, which we did have several years. And I think the other thing that really occurred in the early days to realize that this was a business, we had a business printing 24 hours a day, seven days a week, non-union, and the business had about, I think, at least 50 approximately employees. And the people kept telling me, obviously, we couldn't buy printing elsewhere cheaper because we were a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week operation and uh, therefore we must be getting it at the lowest possible price. And knowing nothing about printing, I accepted that for a couple of years. And then they came to me with the proposal we were going to buy razzle-dazzle additional equipment. If Joe Siegel would still have been there, he would have done it. And who knows, he may have been one of the big printers of America today, although he's done other things that were very successful. And I decided that it's too risky to spend that much money on being a printer. So I told our people uh, we want to close our printing activity. And that's probably the toughest thing I've ever done because we then led about 50 employees who had been there a number of years and were doing the best possible job. We had to let them go. And our family has always cared about people. And that was, I would believe, in looking over my lifetime activity, the toughest thing I ever did. It happened to work out because we, for many years, bought printing for less than we were doing it ourselves. I'm not sure why that was, but it was. But anyway, having to let 50 people go at one time was something that just was contrary to what our family believed in, and it really was a decision that still hurts me today to think about it. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. One of the things that I picked up in your story is this idea of focus and being in just one business unit. 
If you look at ASI today, ASI is in the trade show business, is in the education business, in the technology business, the directory trade association business, and I'm sure the list continues. When you look at your business today with all these different business units, is that not in conflict with that idea of having a, a singular focus, or am I reading that wrong? No, that's a very good question, and probably I didn't explain it as well as I should have. From the days that we sold all of our supplier businesses, we focused on the ad specialty industry. Right, And right. as we found opportunities, and truthfully, we're in a very simple business, Mark and Dale. We're in a business that if we help our members be more successful, they're going to stay members. Mm, yeah. And I tell our people this, Dale has heard it more than he wants to, I'm sure. And if we don't do that, they're not going to stay members and we're not going to have a business. So we focus on a single industry, and yes, we provide a number of different products, and hopefully we'll be lucky and maybe smart, maybe, enough in the future to provide other products. Hmm. Because to me, if we can help the industry grow and succeed, we're going to grow and succeed. Right. And if we can't help them grow and succeed, we're going to be a failure. Another thing my father taught me was, don't be a failure. Hmm. So... That's what I mean by focus. We are, you know, focused on the industry as opposed to being in a variety of different businesses unrelated to each other. Right. The things that we offer, you mentioned many of them, are hopefully helping distributors and suppliers be more successful. Right. At least that's our intention. Right. No, that's great, and thank you for the clarification on that. A quick follow-up to that, Norman. When you look at the company today, when you look at ASI today, do you look at it as a media company, a technology company, or still a trade organization? Because I know that when we go back to 1962, of course, the times were different, the model was different. But has that changed when you look at the company now in 2015? Well, as you pointed out, we've offered, and we offer today, many more concepts and services and products, if you call them products, than we did in the early days. And we returned to some businesses that we were in the early days and got out of like trade shows. But it really comes down to one concept, I suppose, and that is that what is it we can create that is going to help distributors and suppliers. And if we can keep coming up with ideas that work for them, not for us, but for them, that's great. And if we don't, that's going to be the end of ASI as it is today. Right. So we believe the industry has an amazingly great future. It's an easy entry business from a distributor standpoint, and it keeps growing. There are more distributors each year, and the suppliers have changed. To give you a quick example or two, when we started in the industry as ASI and we entered it, there were no wearable products of any kind. Hmm. The first one was T-shirts brought up by a supplier in St. Louis, and that was a number of years later. Hmm. And today, as everybody knows, wearables represent a spectacular part of the industry. So the suppliers continue to find new products, or new suppliers are, that aren't in the industry today come in with a new product. Obviously, many of the technology products weren't around then. The flash drives, the power banks, even microfiber, all those things are relatively new during this period. I believe in the future, and I wish I could know which items they were going to be, 
there will be a number of new items that will represent a significant amount of sales that aren't even thought of today. Yeah. And we brought food gifts in at the industry. Nobody had done that. There were plenty of food gifts being sold outside the industry by mail. And so the industry keeps growing by the combination of more distributors and more products that are being offered. Hmm. I want to ask a question about your relationship with Dale. You had mentioned before we jumped on the podcast, Norman, that, quote, Dale was your most difficult hire, or maybe you didn't quite say it that way, or the, maybe the most difficult person to attract to the organization. Well, that certainly is true. <laughs> Do you uh, want to Dale tell the story? I've been with a, a company called Impact, and we had admired Dale from a distance. He used to give presentations at shows using FedEx, I, I remember, as the uh, concept that he was demonstrating. And we contacted Dale, hoping that we could influence him to join us, and he had zero interest. He would have had as much interest at that point in joining ASI as if I said, I have the exclusive Ebola franchise. <laughs> you can become part of it. Uh, he really had a negative attitude. He'd heard things that obviously weren't favorable and thought they were true. He since, of course, we were able to hire him, and he's done well as we knew he would with us, and he's gone on, of course, with Geiger to do great things as well. I remember the phone conversations we had trying to convince him to even consider working for us. Finally, we lured himself and his wife, Kim, lovely person, to Philadelphia and sat around with our family. And I think he found that some of the things he was concerned about weren't accurate, or at least we were lucky and were able to hire him. Hmm. Well, and, and let me add some color to that, Mark, because everything Norman just said, as, as usual, is 100% factual. And just imagine, Mark, you've known me now for I don't know how many years, but imagine an even more immature and more um, confident version of me, and that's how I was. I was probably around 30, Norman, when, when all right. of this uh, started. And one of the, the things that I remember the most was when Norman and I talked at a trade show, not realizing really just how special Norman is, I looked at him and I said, why is it that people hate you so much? I actually used those words, and I looked back and I think, what an idiot for saying that. And Norman so graciously looked at me as he does with everybody, and this is one of the things I truly adore about Norman at the time I had with him. He looked at me and said, you know, Dale, we haven't always treated people the way we should have. Sometimes we've taken our position for granted. And I'm paraphrasing because it's been 15 years, but this is roughly what he said. And he said, you know, I, that's not the way we want to run our business. We want to treat people the way they want to be treated. And when I worked for him, he taught me that was true, or he followed through on that. And the things Norman did and said behind closed doors have influenced my life greatly, and I am a much better person for the 10-plus years I spent with his family and several of those with Tim Andrews. And what he said about me being a difficult hire is absolutely true, and I'm, at, I'm forever in his debt and Matthew's debt for pushing through it despite some of my challenge. And there's just so much about Norman that people don't know. They know the side of Norman and ASI that, is perceived to be very competitive, which, Norman, you are a very competitive person. But there's a whole other side of him and how he treats people. And the story he told about laying off 50 people being his most difficult decision is really a good barometer for the Norman Cohen that I know. 
Hmm. And so I just wanted to add that flavor to well, that conversation. Thank you, Dale. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much. So I'm interested to ask you a question, Dale, here, to turn it over to you for a second. Can you tell me about some of the lessons that you learned working for Norman directly and how you've been able to apply them to your role today at Geiger? I guess there's two big things that come to mind. One of them is what we just talked about, and that's basically treat people the way you want to be treated. Um, Norman is remarkable in his ability to make you feel special or recognize how special you are. And Norman, before management by walking around was a popular term, did management by walking around. He knew the names of employees. And one of the reasons, if I recall, and if I have this wrong, Norman, correct me, one of the reasons there were nameplates at every desk was so when Norman stopped by any of the 500-plus employees, he would know their name, and that usually was a trigger. And he could talk to them about their family. Norman cared genuinely deeply about the people he worked for, and that really taught me to do the same. So that, that was one thing I learned was to treat people like you want to be treated. The other is don't be afraid to take risks and to make some investments that aren't as clear-cut. And he's proven it to be successful on many, many occasions. I'm sure he's had more failures that we all don't know about, but he's had so many successes. And when I joined ASI, I had I'd come from a much smaller mentality, and you had to have every answer before you could take any risk. And Norman said, you know, sometimes you take some risks, and you, you just work, and you keep putting energy into them as long as they make sense. And those are two things that I remember learning very well during my time there. Thank you, Dale. And they are two cornerstones of what I believe in. And yes, I've had failures that uh, uh, I like to forget and concentrate on the future. But if you don't take risks, you know, my father taught me, Babe Ruth struck out more times than he hit home runs. Right. And you learn nothing if you hit a home run every time you're at bat yep. because you if you strike out you might and, and pay attention, you might learn something. So right. uh, what Dale said is accurate, and thank you. That's fascinating. What an interesting peek for me on the outside to hear those stories between the two of you. This ends our first installment of the Promo Kitchen podcast with Norman Cohn. Please be sure to join us next week when Norman talks about how things look in 2015 and beyond. We hope to see you then. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. See you next time.